Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, our Can He Do That team is still on break for the holidays, but we have one last piece of our three-part series from earlier this year that we're bringing back for you this week. Just before the presidential election, our series focused on the legacy of the past four years of the Trump administration. If you listen to these episodes now with the election behind us, the series reveals what drove some voter decisions at the polls, and it forecasts some of the debates happening within our political parties today. Here's the last episode of that series on Trump and the economy. The Trump administration has exposed the vulnerabilities in so many parts of the American system. So far in this series, we've taken a look at the ways the past four years have exacerbated racial divisions in this country and how the politicization of scientific knowledge left Americans in doubt about shared understandings and truths. But you can't talk about the divisions in this country without addressing an undeniable piece of the modern American story, wealth disparity. Now, wealth disparity in the U.S. predates President Trump. Trump, of course, did not build the foundation of the United States economy. He did not create its flaws. We have to have a limit on the flow of money and that corporations are not people. The middle class is collapsing. Poverty is increasing. The people on top are doing phenomenally well. He's going to let the big banks once again write their own rules. Unchain Wall Street. Long before Trump took office, the American economy had its fair share of problems. In the past few decades, richer households have seen more rapid growth in income than poorer households. Income inequality has been growing since 1980. The wealth gap between America's richest and poorest families more than doubled from 1989 to 2016. But some of the Trump administration's most touted victories have exacerbated these realities. Pieces of the puzzle that have bolstered the uneven distribution of American wealth. Policies that over the long term will exacerbate the economic divides that underlie so many of the challenges the U.S. faces. This is the final episode in a three-part series for Can He Do That? about the legacy of the past four years of the Trump administration. In office, he has served to try to appeal to his hardcore partisan conservative base at the expense of efforts to heal the country or bridge our partisan divide. In this series, we're looking at one of the most notable transformations of the United States under Trump's tenure, hyperpolarization. And for the past 25 years, our country's been on this trajectory of increased partisanship and increased polarization. But it was really punctuated by the 2016 election, how deeply divided that left the country. And how some pieces of the Trump agenda have exacerbated this contentious, bitterly divided place in American history. So now, 2020, he's up for re-election, and this country is as divided as it's probably ever been, at least in our lifetimes, but perhaps dating back to the civil rights movement. In this episode, wealth disparity, where increasing gaps in income and assets leave the American people, and how those widening gaps influence our ability to have a shared American experience. But first, let's understand where the American economy stood when Trump became president in January of 2017. 
The economy, as you likely remember, was a central part of Trump's campaign. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We will bring back our jobs. We will bring back our wealth. And we will bring back our dreams. He made promises to renegotiate trade deals, to cut taxes, and to put the American people back to work. Washington Post economics editor Damian Paletta has covered economic policy for decades. So back in 2016, you're watching this candidate, Donald Trump, and the way he talks about the economy. Do you remember your first impression of his economic approach or what he was saying about the economy? A couple of things struck me. One, this guy's populist, and populist candidates are very hard to predict. His message did not just appeal to Republicans. He was talking to a lot of blue-collar workers in the upper Midwest. A lot of the things he was saying about trade in China, I think, were very appealing to people who are making 14 or $15 an hour and lost their benefits over the years. And, and so I think that the way he scrambled the economic message made him, you know, a real wild card in the election. We saw that that message really appealed to people. Were Trump's gripes in line with the realities of our economy's failures at the time? Was he touching on things that were real problems? There was a sense in 2016, we were seven or eight years after the financial crisis, and there was a lot of frustration among the middle class as to why their lives hadn't improved, hadn't kind of gotten back to where they were before. Why were jobs still disappearing to China and Mexico? Why were factories still closing down in Indiana and Michigan? Even though he didn't have all the answers, he was definitely saying the kind of provocative things a lot of politicians had been kind of afraid to say, that the things they had been promising weren't materializing and creating all these new jobs. And I think the fact, too, that he didn't just accept or adopt, you know, every Republican talking point for the past 20 years, that he came up with his own ideas, he had his own advisors, he kind of rejected the status quo and the party orthodoxy. I think that made him attractive to a lot of people who had voted for Democrats in the past and were willing to cross over. When Trump won the election in 2016, that meant that he would now be tasked with addressing the economic woes he had pledged to solve on the campaign trail. He inherited an economy that was steadily growing, albeit slowly. But close to 200,000 jobs a month were being added. The unemployment rate was low and falling. The economy was getting better, but... The problem was that wages were really lagging. So I think a lot of um, Americans that had had enough of the democratic approach of this kind of aggressive regulation approach that maybe some people thought was squelching growth, and maybe they should try what Trump was proposing to kind of let the shackles off the economy and let it go. Deregulation was an early and aggressive focus for the Trump administration. Our regulations, which are killing our companies, are going to be cut massively by me. And I'll tell you what, you look at your energy companies, your natural gas, your coal companies, they can't do business, they can't compete with the rest of the world because the regulations are so horrible and so massive. Regulations are essentially the rules the government issues that tell businesses where the lines are drawn, what they can and cannot do when it comes to how they conduct their business. The Obama administration came in after eight years of a Republican administration, and they felt like 
the Bush administration had just gone way too far in paring back restrictions on businesses, environmental restrictions, uh, banking restrictions, all kinds of different things that the Obama administration felt like needed to be instituted in order to protect the economy, protect the environment. So they put on a number of new regulations. Now, obviously, a lot of people did not like those regulations. A lot of businesses were impacted by them. And so there was an aggressive lobbying campaign during the transition, quite frankly, to get the Trump administration to start rolling those back. But it wasn't just external pressure that motivated Trump to want to roll these regulations back. He long believed that too much regulation hurts economic growth. Trump's view was that there's all these layers of regulation just smothering the economy. You know, companies had to spend all this time dealing with regulators and rules. They weren't able to just go out and, and hire and invest in the economy. So President Trump made it a real priority to get rid of these regulations as many as he could. I think, I think there's sort of philosophy and then just raw interests. This is economist Josh Bivens, director of research at the Economic Policy Institute. The philosophy is generally that free markets lead to efficiency and growth and regulation is sand in the gears of free markets and growth is really valuable. I think a lot of regulations, like, for example, in the labor space, are really meant to provide some protection and bargaining power to typical workers against um, employers who tend to have more power in that space. And employers don't like that. They would like to tilt the playing field even more to them. And I think Trump, like most Republican administrations, listen a lot to employer and business interests. How much of Trump's desire to roll back these regulations were out of an antipathy toward Obama, out of a desire to just undo parts of Obama's legacy? My guess is quite a bit. On the other hand, it was it's also a very standard orthodox Republican playbook for a administration to really take a hatchet to regulations. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. And the Trump administration did take a hatchet to regulations, quickly and aggressively. During Trump's first year in office, the administration issued nearly 20 executive actions and made nearly 100 agency-level decisions aimed at reviewing, revoking, or overriding Obama-era regulations. Since then, they've continued removing regulations on businesses, and still now, the administration has been working to quickly remove many more regulations before January. So, Josh, what have been the consequences of rolling back these regulations? Are there any in particular that really stand out to you? I would say in the um, environmental space, the Clean Power Plan, it was an Obama-era regulation that was really meant to address the em emission of greenhouse gases. It would have gone a long way in putting us on a path to sort of a greener economy. I think the tying that up, that's going to really set back our attempts to get to a greener economy and, and fight the effects of climate change. And then in the labor space, one that matters a lot is the, is the assault on overtime regulations. The Obama administration made a much wider swath of workers um, available to get really clear, bright line overtime protections. They need to be paid if you work them more than 40 hours a week. The Trump administration has tried to weaken those every step along the way. 
Has this focus on deregulation helped the economy in the way Trump suggested it would? Definitely not. Basically, if regulations were forcing firms into doing things in inefficient ways, now that we've taken the regulation away and they're able to do the more efficient things, you should see an increase in productivity. And you should also see an increase in business investment. If the idea is that businesses were not doing much investment because it just wasn't worth it with all the regulation, it was keeping their profit margins down, once you... take away that barrier, you should see a big increase in investment. And those things have not happened. I mean, you've seen actually sort of a pretty big decline in investment over most of the post-2017 period in the Trump administration. You've seen very little uptick in productivity growth, even from a very low level. So the, the evidence that the deregulation push has been a boost for the U.S. economy seems completely lacking to me. But Josh says this deregulation has had one particularly notable impact on the economy. I think in the regulatory realm, it was mostly an effort to sort of tilt the playing field away from typical workers and consumers and towards corporate managers and and capital owners. Trump's economy, though, did show a lot of strength and a lot of growth in his first few years in office. Some of that growth came inherited on an upward path set in motion by the Obama administration, despite Trump's efforts to take credit for the upturn. But it's true that in Trump's first years as president, unemployment was low, the stock market was doing well, and wages were increasing. Plus, Trump followed through on quite a few of his economic campaign promises. For example, he had campaigned on a vow to cancel NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. He argued that NAFTA had caused jobs to leave the U.S. and to move to Mexico. I asked Damien why that promise appealed to voters at the time. So a lot of jobs ended up moving for years, and that really ticked off a lot of the union workers who had been told that NAFTA was going to be good for them. And when they saw their jobs disappearing, this resentment built and built. And then sure enough, you have President Trump come along. Usually Republicans are very much in favor of free trade. And here you have a Republican that's very skeptical of of the past free trade agreements. And he was singing a tune that they liked. And so when he promised to rework NAFTA or get rid of NAFTA, he had their immediate attention. In 2018, with Democratic support, Trump successfully replaced NAFTA with the USMCA. That's the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, and it created new environmental and labor standards and made it so that car companies have to use a higher share of North American parts, among other things. Trump also followed through on his promise to get tough on China. China was one of the things that President Trump talked about most on the campaign trail. The president really believed, and there was some merit to what he was saying, that China had for years taken advantage of the United States through weak trade enforcement and was able to send a lot of really low-priced goods to the United States in a way that destroyed more American jobs. Trump's desire to crack down on China led to a chaotic trade war of escalating tariffs and tensions until... Finally, on January 15th, 2020, we had this historic signing ceremony of a phase one trade deal where the Chinese did agree to make some changes to uh, address some of the president's demands. Now, whether or not that trade deal with China was effective, whether it helped the American worker or the U.S. economy overall, it really remains to be seen, given the events in the world soon after that trade deal was signed in January of 2020, we may never quite know the impact of the deal. But deregulation, NAFTA, China, these aren't the only things Trump touts as economic successes. Throughout his re-election campaign, Trump has focused on one particular achievement over and over tax cuts. 
Tax reform was kind of a perfect scenario for President Trump because it allowed him to focus on numbers, right? He just loves numbers, picking a number and sticking with it. Back in the 2016 race, the president said throughout his campaign that he wanted to see tax relief for middle-class families. We want to keep our taxes as low as possible. Right now, they're far too high. And tax reform became an early focus for Trump and Republicans in Congress. But once in office, a big part of that tax reform effort focused more on the corporate tax rate. Josh explained how that tax rate works. So the corporate tax rate is sort of the tax rate that is applied to the profits of corporations, you know, not their sales, not their revenue, what they earn after costs like labor costs and rent and interest have been deducted. And so it's the tax rate on their operating income or profits. Trump thought that at 35 percent, the rate was too high. And he did have a point. Globally, that corporate tax rate was much higher than in other countries. The economic argument for why cutting corporate taxes might be a good thing for the economy is they they should lead to more investment and higher productivity growth in the long run. At the time, in 2017, Republicans led both houses of Congress. They'd had several high-profile legislative failures, so Republicans were determined to end the year with a major achievement. That drove compromise and consolidation within the party around tax reform. As a result, in December of 2017, Congress passed the most significant overhaul of the U.S. tax code in 30 years. It offered a clear conservative vision. Corporations saw a massive tax cut. A new tax cut was put in place for the rich. The law got rid of the individual mandate from the Affordable Care Act, meaning Americans would no longer be required to buy health insurance. And a new rule made it so that people can only deduct up to $10,000 of their state and local taxes. That amount used to be unlimited. Most Americans saw temporary savings of various sizes. Those cuts, though, are set to expire over time. The biggest gains went to the wealthy. Definitely did not provide tax relief in the long run for middle-class families. The tax law is a little weird in that it does some reform or changes in the individual side that does give some money to middle-class families. The permanent things that are changed in the tax code are the big cut to corporations. So over any long-run horizon, it is a tax cut for corporations, you know, sort of full stop. And there's a claim that, you know, that trickles down to help sort of more typical families. We know the direct effect of cutting corporate income taxes. It benefits the owners of corporations, which are people who own stock, which is a very concentrated group of people. Basically, the wealthiest 10% of families own about 90% of of stocks. And so that trickle down has to be pretty powerful to actually reach middle-class families. That trickle down only happens if you get that boost in investment and productivity growth, which then leads to, to wage increases. Evidence on those last three links of the chain, investment, productivity, wage increases, um, just no evidence at all that after the tax cut, those things happened. We've talked about deregulation, about trade, about tax reform. What do you think, Josh, will emerge as the biggest lesson from the Trump economy? The biggest policy lesson from past three or four years is mostly about what the Federal Reserve did not do. The Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. It basically exists to help keep the U.S. economy stable. Among its many roles, it provides certain financial services to the government and sets interest rates for the country. Basically, for decades, the Federal Reserve has really thought its job one is to contain even potential inflation, sort of inflation coming around the corner. And so that meant when unemployment started to drop quite low, they would often sort of start hitting the brakes on the economy because they wouldn't thought that would spur inflationary pressures. 
Trump comes into office with an unemployment rate, which is already very low in historical context. And somewhat amazingly, the Fed mostly let unemployment keep falling to levels that were really unimaginable like 10 and 15 years ago. No inflation happens. There's just no evidence of it anywhere. And I think that's a hugely durable and important lesson. I think the Trump agenda of tax cuts and deregulation and a rather chaotic trade war, my sense is people will say that was mostly distributional. So not something that made the economy larger, just changed who within the economy got what. So Trump's economy was doing well writ large, though he often took credit for parts of the growing economy set in motion by the Obama administration. Trump did come through on many of his economic campaign promises. But what gets left out of that story, as we've just heard, is that by coming through on some of his campaign promises, Trump's policies were often exacerbating wealth divides. And those economic divides became even clearer when our country was faced with the impact of a global pandemic. Where has COVID left the American economy? Really deeply damaged. Where we are today with unemployment just below 8% is actually much better than where I thought we'd be. If you had asked me this question like two months ago, where would we be at the beginning of October? And yet I'm pretty pessimistic about the next six to 12 months, basically because over the past three or four months, we've gained a lot of jobs on the order of like 10 million jobs back from the 22 million lost. But they've mostly been driven just by the reopening. Basically, when we shut down huge sectors of the economy entirely, restaurants, hotels, it was going to be very easy to get some of those back just by doing some reopening. Going forward, though, I think we're the, the pressure, the downward pressure on job growth in the economy is going to be more just sort of traditional aggregate demand. People won't have income to spend and go out and buy things. And on that front, things are much worse than they were a couple months ago, mostly because the policy aid to people that we passed with the CARES Act has pretty much all run out. And so now people who were really able to see their incomes buoyed by that extra $600 in unemployment insurance, that's gone. They're going to reduce their spending radically going forward. That will drag on the economy. And then the other thing that hits the economy with a lag that we haven't seen yet, but will be really damaging unless we do something, is the state and local austerity coming our way, unless the federal government gives them some aid. State and local tax collections just cratered. People stopped going to hotels, stopped going to restaurants. Downward pressure on their spending going forward, that will drag on the economy unless the federal government does something. Trump initially supported the decision by states to put stay-at-home orders in place and shutter businesses until the virus was under control. But within weeks, faced with a sagging economy, Trump quickly changed his tune. The president repeatedly suggested that the harm being done to the economy would be worse than the threat of the virus's spread. Trump often put pressure on states to reopen businesses, and he did that despite recommendations to the contrary from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and from his own public health officials. So, Josh, how much of where we are today is a result of the actions or the policies of the Trump administration? I'd say what's driving the economy over the past four to five months is entirely the virus. So this is a case where like public health policy is economic policy. Countries like Germany and South Korea and Taiwan that seem to have done a much better job in containing the virus are seeing much better economic outcomes. As of October, the nation has 26 million people on unemployment aid. Employment for low-wage workers was down more than 20% in August from the summer before, and down around 10% for middle-wage workers. White-collar jobs, though, had mostly rebounded by the end of the summer, along with home values and stock prices. The economic collapse sparked by the pandemic has triggered the most unequal recession in modern U.S. history. 
it's meant a mild setback for those at or near the top and a depression-like blow for those at the bottom. Recessions often hit poorer households harder, but this one is doing so at a scale that is the worst in generations. The nation overall has regained nearly half of the lost jobs, but several key demographic groups have recovered more slowly, including mothers of school-aged children, Black men, Black women, Hispanic men, Asian Americans, younger Americans, and people without college degrees. So it's a complicated story. Before 2020, we saw a growing economy, albeit with many inequities. And since 2020 began, we've seen the most unequal recession in modern history. I asked Damien then, how will history judge the Trump economy? This idea of cutting taxes and slashing regulation and making trade changes, he didn't go into these things with modest expectations. He tried to go all in. And when you cut taxes in a way that creates an instant trillion dollar deficit, and then a few years later, you have a $3 trillion deficit, that's going to be a lasting negative legacy for the United States if there's not tremendous growth that comes from those tax cuts. Now, at the same time, if those tax cuts allow the U.S. economy to heal more quickly from the coronavirus pandemic, then I think the president could deserve a lot of credit for helping pave the way for the recovery. And I think the same thing with trade. If these trade deals, USMCA, China, if those things end up creating a lot of additional American jobs, then the president will get a lot of credit in the years to come. But if they end up being much ado about nothing and they kind of stalled business investment and confused people heading into the pandemic and then no one really takes these trade deals seriously, then I think there'll be a real stain on his legacy that no one will ever forget. If you've been listening to this three-part series, then you remember our White House bureau chief, Philip Rucker. I brought him back one final time to ask him how Trump himself measures his own economy, what metrics the president uses to decide how well or how poorly things are going. He looks at the stock ticker every day. I mean, he's a New York real estate guy. He thought about the stock market a lot before coming into office. And to him, that is the kind of daily barometer of how the economy is doing. And he likes to tout the strong stock market gains as a sign that the economy is roaring. But that's sort of a flawed look at the economy, right? Because so many Americans have nothing to do with the stock market and and don't have investments and may not be getting raises in their jobs, even if the stock market's going up. So it's not a good indication of the strength of the overall economy, but it certainly is an indication of the investments occurring on Wall Street. And, and he sees it as the most important barometer for the Trump economy. And how might the realities of economic disparities play out when voters actually go to make a choice at the polls? You know, that's an important point, and it's something that Biden has been making um, as a candidate in the debates and on, on the campaign trail that Trump talks a big game about the economy and the raw statistics about his economy show pretty robust growth. However, he has not changed the lives of a lot of working and middle class people in a positive way. And it's really the rich getting richer and the poor and the middle class being left behind. Over three episodes in this series, we've looked at ways the past four years have changed the fabric of American unity and American division. The U.S. is more deeply divided than ever, and struggles around race, lack of faith in institutions and science, and increasing wealth disparities have led our nation to a moment of reckoning ahead of the 2020 presidential election. But even amidst this discord, it's the American way to hold on to hope of a more unified future. So I asked Philip, Is there a path toward a less fractured United States of America? 
I think all Americans hope that we could see a more united country in the future. I certainly do as a citizen, as a journalist. I don't know if it's in our immediate future, but I would like to think that at some point in the future and hopefully sooner rather than later, the, the country can try to heal some of these wounds. This has been the final episode in a special series for Can He Do That? about the legacy of the past four years of the Trump administration. A big thank you to Damian Paletta, Philip Rucker, and Josh Bivens. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. This special series was produced by Ariel Plotnik and Arjun Singh with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. Available now.